our response should be to get to know and rest in the promises of his word. You're listening to David, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Well, hey, Shoreliners, it's Pastor Pilgrim here coming to you live from my office. And uh, we're going to do our best with the uh, latest setbacks around the world with this pandemic to still get the Word of God out. And so it's my privilege to be sharing the Word with you this morning. Uh, We want to continue to remind you uh, to go to our website, thisisshoreline.com, and you'll see a link there with some relevant updates. We're going to be having a prayer meeting this Tuesday night, and so we'll be sending out some information through email. You can follow the link on the website at the top uh, banner as well. Uh, But listen, during times like this, as we sent out in our digital bulletin this week, we want to just be reminded that God is still sovereign, that God's in control, and that he providentially has a plan in the midst of this difficulty. So I want us to keep trusting the Lord, keep praying. Let's pray that God would work and intervene in this pandemic, in this crisis, and that we as Christians would continue to show the hope of the gospel in the midst of these difficult days. So um, to that end, I just want to encourage us to continue praying, uh, to continue uh, building community as much as we're able to, uh, to make those phone calls, to text, to keep your community group or your social group here at the church um, in mind and in prayer, and uh, reach out to them. This can be a great time for us to still build community, even while we can't physically meet together for the next little bit. Uh, I want to encourage us to continue uh, to reach out to those who need help. So if you have um, someone that you're aware of in our church or in our community that's in need, uh, we want to know about that. We want to pray about that. And we as a church want to mobilize and be ready to assist anyone in our community that has an immediate need. So let's open our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll dive into our study. Father, thank you for your word and we thank you for technology that allows us to do what we're doing today. We pray for everyone who's gathered together in their homes, Lord, watching right now live, that you would equip and encourage the saints. So we thank you for your word. And now, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would use this means of technology that you would allow your word to go forth. And so we just commit this time to you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the greatest blessings that a person can have is to care for their family in such a way where they're able to bring them into a spacious home that they can call their own. Now, many people around the world today don't have that luxury. They don't have that opportunity. They live in transience. They live in a place they wouldn't exactly call home. Many people are refugees, and what was home has proven dangerous, so they're in exile. But they're still longing to return home one day. Uh, many of us rent our home, some of us own our home, and still others of us loaf. <laughs> and what I think we can all agree on is that there's nothing quite like finding a piece of land and then building your own home from the ground up. Now, I've never done that. I've never built a house. Some of you 
would know that I'm not exactly what you would call a handyman. I'm much more um, of a writer than a carpenter, so I can certainly write you a poem about building you a house. But nonetheless, um, years ago, Jen and I were moving in next door to her mom's house into a duplex, and we wanted to make some improvements on uh, the home. So I volunteered to do a lot of the work to, uh, this is what it entailed, installing the flooring, installing the countertops, installing the actual kitchen um, cabinetry, and to do the tile backsplash. Now, thankfully I had help on some of the more intensive jobs. So I didn't end up doing all of that, but I did have some help. Uh, except for the back family room. In the back family room, I did all by myself using a skill saw uh, with a tape measure. And so by myself, I cut the laminate, I laid the flooring, and then I installed the baseboards. And I have to say, it was a triumph of incredible skill <laughs> and precision, just amazing to look at, except every other board was identical. And so I didn't lay out the pattern very well, but nonetheless, every time I walked into that room, Ever since then, I kind of smile a little bit and my, my head goes back a little bit and my chest, chest puffs out a little bit because I can say, I did build my house. Now, hopefully when I say that, a little alarm bell goes off and you go, well, hang on, Pastor, you didn't actually build your house. You're not being accurate. You took some fake wood pieces and you cut them in a straight line and then you folded them into themselves and then you put them on the ground and made them arranged in a certain you know, connected way. But pastor, you didn't pour any concrete. You, you didn't lay any of the, the um, joists, the trusses. There was no roof installation. You didn't do any drywalling. You had nothing to do with the electrical or the plumbing. Um, and, and you didn't even probably glance over the architect plans. And you'd be right, you'd be right. To make it worse, I don't even know if I remember pulling any permits if I did, or if I did do the right permits. But um, I can't relate to what it means to truly build a house from scratch on the practical end of things. But on the spiritual end of things, I could say that I do know what it takes to build a house. The scripture tells us in Psalm 127.1 that unless the Lord builds the house, the labors are those who labor in vain. Now, obviously God is not a literal carpenter, a literal mason who's constructing a literal building that a family lives in. But the psalmist who wrote this, which is Solomon, he's King David's son who would eventually be the one who would build a temple for God. And when he wrote that, he understood that God is the ultimate architect and a life not submitted to God's plans would be a life lived in vain. Now, as awesome as it is to build a house for your family, and those of you who've done that, that's amazing. Imagine how you would feel living in a cedar-paneled home while God, so to speak, still resides in a tent. And see, that's exactly what crosses King David's mind in 2 Samuel chapter 7. As we open this chapter together this morning, we're going to see that David longs to build a house for God's presence to dwell in. But as he goes to express that desire to the Lord... God actually switches the script on him and says some things back to David that he wasn't expecting. So if you're taking notes today, I hope you are. Um, here's how we're going to break this down. You'll see it at the bottom as we go along. First, we're going to see in verses 1 through 7 that David wants to make a house for God. David makes a house for God. And then we're going to see in verses 8 through 17 that God actually makes David a house. We'll see that David shows his appreciation in verses 18 through 24, and then we'll see the servant David's appeal in verses 25 through 29. So 
with kind of that as our outline this morning, let's go ahead and look at verse 1. Open your Bible, 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 1. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. He says, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, this is the first time that we're introduced to this man named Nathan, and we learned that his title is Prophet. Uh, the prophets of Israel had a very unique relationship with the king, very interesting relationship. When you go back a ways, you see that when Canaan was first settled by um, Israel, this was the period that we call the Judges, the nation of Israel was actually more like a group of, of scattered, disorganized tribes. They had very little connection with one another, and they almost seemed to be living as separate peoples. And so the prophet Samuel had been born, and he kind of helped bridge this, this gap between two periods. One period was this period of, of isolated tribes, and then this other period is a time where there was unity under Israel's first king. So Samuel's life bridged those two time periods. And Samuel himself was a prophet, he was also a priest, and he was also a judge who ushered in a period of transition and radical changes in Hebrew life. And he's the one who helped mold Israel into a unified nation. Now, Samuel would later form what we would call a school of prophets, kind of a prophet seminary for future prophets who would work with future kings. And Samuel, if you remember, was the first one to anoint a king uh, and really the first two kings of Israel, Saul and King David. But the judges and the priests had at, at Samuel's time become moral failures. And so as we've learned in this study through the book of First and Second Samuel, the people began to cry out for a king. And they rejected God as their ruler and they wanted a human figurehead to be their new ruler. So this office of king is new for Israel. This is the judicial ruler, the one who would protect the Israelite people. And now it's David. David is king. David's household is in the line of kings. The office of priest, the, the one who would mediate between God and man for the remission of sins, this priesthood would continue through Aaron's line and through the tribe of Levi. But now the office of prophet, who was neither a mediator nor a judicial ruler, but he was one who spoke for God to the people and communicated the very words of God to the leadership of Israel, this prophet would now come alongside the king and offer him counsel. So Nathan, at this time in 2 Samuel 7, is now that man. Now, we're not sure if uh, if Nathan was trained in Samuel's prophet school, but now he's one of the king's advisors and he's the one through whom God would speak to the people. So David sees that the Lord gives him rest from all of his enemies and he starts noticing, hey, wow, I reside in this beautiful cedar home of, of wood, even as the ark of God, which represents the presence and glory of God himself, is still sitting in a temporary tent. So notice verse 3, how Nathan the prophet responds to David. It says, And Nathan, Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, just real quick, as a prophet, he was not to presume to speak for God. But here he's on the same page with David. He's saying, Hey, it sounds good, Dave. The Lord is with you. Go build that house. But he hasn't actually directly heard from God on that. 
and until that night. Look at verse 4 with me. Verse 4 says, But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought the people of Israel up from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? See, up until this point, the people had settled uh, and, and they've kind of upgraded their wilderness tents, but not the ark. You see, the ark had been placed in this temporary tent of meeting, which we call the tabernacle. God had commanded Moses to build this tabernacle with the very, uh, very specific dimensions and instructions in Exodus 25. And so this temporary dwelling had worked um, just fine for Israel up until that point because they were constantly on the move through the wilderness. And we know David had also been on the move. David had made his home at one point in a cave, the cave of Adullam. But see, now he's dwelling in a cedar paneled home from the cave to the cedar. And so the cave would no longer do for David. So he's thinking, you know what? If that no longer does for me, then the tabernacle really should no longer do for God. So it's time for David to build himself a long-term home, and it's time for him to build a long-term home to replace the tabernacle. But see, God tells Nathan to relay to David that God had not instructed anyone over those decades in the wilderness, 400 years ago, as they were wandering about, God had not told anyone to build him a house. It, it really wasn't necessary. So let's look at our second section, starting in verse 8. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. Verse 8 says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. God says, you know, it's nice that you want to do this for me, David. It really is. But don't forget who has been blessing whom. I took you from pastor to prince. I took you from being a shepherd and now you're royalty. I've been the one who's, fight, who's been fighting your enemies for you, David. And, and so this is what I have done. This is what God has done. And now look what God promises to do beyond here. Look at the rest of verse 9. Uh, he goes on uh, in verse 9 and says, And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint you a, a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges, judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. So God is in effect saying to David, you know what? I'm going to continue to make your name great in all the earth. And I'm going to make at the same time Israel safe and secure. And if that weren't enough, we come to the second half of verse 11. Look at the second half of verse 11. Uh, he says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord, Jehovah, will make you a house. God, in effect, is saying, Thank you, David, for wanting to make me a building, 
But see, instead, I'm going to be the builder. I'm going to be the one that builds you into an everlasting dynasty that far outlives any facility that you can build or construct for me. David, I appreciate you wanting to build something for me, but I'm going to build something out of you. Now, notice verse 12 through verse 17. Verse 12 says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. You see, church, in effect, God tells David that instead, God is going to make him a house. And then he says that David's offspring will be the one who will build the temple. And so this has an immediate fulfillment in David's actual son, Solomon. Why would God not allow David to be the one to build the temple, but instead allow his son Solomon to be the one? This could seem confusing to us, but thankfully, Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. And so we learn in 2 Chronicles 22 some more context for the conversation that David has with his son. Uh, read along with me. 2 Chronicles 22 and verse 6 says, Then he called for Solomon his son, and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, verse 7, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. Verse 8, But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Verse 9, Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. Verse 10. He shall build a house for my name, he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. Wow, so because David's hands were, you could say, bloodstained from battle, God reserves the right to wait patiently for his son Solomon who would be a man of rest and peace, for Solomon to construct the holy temple. Now, many of us think David may have been put off by this, that God he wanted to do this for God, and God said no, and so he was upset. But see, I don't think that's the case. Sometimes what we desire to do for God is not exactly what he's calling us to be involved with directly. But see, that doesn't mean that we can't be supportive of it in an indirect way. Meyer says it this way, if you cannot have what you hoped, do not sit down in despair and allow the energies of your life to run to waste, but arise and gird yourself to help others to achieve. If you may not build, you may gather materials for him that shall. If you may not go down the mine, you can hold the ropes. That's a famous line from the missionary to India, William Carey, and he famously told his friend Andrew Fuller, I will go down into the pit if you will hold the ropes. You know, guys, some of us aren't going into the pit, but all of us can be a support to those who are. 
And that's one of the reasons I love being a part of a church that is focused on sending missionaries and supporting missionaries uh, to unreached people groups and doing church planting to those who are most unreached. We are glad as a church to hold the ropes so that others have the faith and the provision to go down into the pit. And we want to continue to raise more people up to do that. So though David wouldn't be the one doing it, um, his son Solomon would. Now, let's look at our third section, uh, David's response. This is what we call the servant's appreciation. Look at verse 18. And we're going to look uh, just at verses 18 and 19 for a minute. It says, Then King David went in and sat before the king and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. Notice that David's response in this moment is not, wow, thank you, Lord. Obviously, you notice how great I am. I appreciate you noticing that. I must be so important that you would grace me with this gift. No. See, this gift made David see God in a greater way, not himself. And his response, notice, is, who am I? Who am I that you would bestow this on me? David Gustick says that God's giving reflects the greatness of the giver, not the receiver. And that's David's response. In this great act of grace, David says, who am I that you would do this for me? Now he goes on in verses 20 through 22. Look at it with me. He says, and what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. David says, in effect, God, no one compares with you. There's no one even like you. Because of your promise, God, you have made all of this come to pass. I have nothing more to say to you. You alone are great. And then notice in verses 23 and 24 what David says. He says, starting in verse 23, And who is like your people, Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. Verse 24, and you established for yourself, your people Israel, to be your people forever. And now, O Lord, uh, you, O Lord, became their God. David, the king is saying, Lord, your people are, are one of a kind, just like you. They're, they're set apart the way you're set apart. And you've set us apart as your people and you've redeemed us out of Egypt. Why? To show the world your great name. You see, Israel was shown mercy from God to be a sign to the nations of God's steadfast and salvific love. The nation of Israel was to be a signpost, you could say a billboard, so to speak, to be a marketing campaign to all the world, all the nations of God's loving kindness and God's mercy uh, to show the world who he is. And as Israel enjoyed God's grace, they were instructed then to extend his glory. And they didn't always do that. And so David is, in this moment, appreciating that God is richly and mercifully blessing his household and, and, and blessing his people, even though none of them deserve it. And by definition, that is mercy. It's getting what you don't deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. 
and mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And so David then has a prayer request, and it starts in verse 25. So look at this last section, the servant's appeal in verse 25. Just look at, at the one verse, verse 25. It says, And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you've spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. Now, I want you to track with me here. David is praying a very balanced prayer in this, in verse 25. Follow with me. He's not praying arrogantly. He's not saying, God, I command you to do this. Now do it. Okay, if you were to do that, that'd be blasphemous, and that would be really inappropriate for the creature to tell the creator what to do. So it's not arrogant, but neither is David praying passively. Like, oh, well, Lord, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. So do whatever you want to do anyway. Just keep me in the loop. It's not a passive prayer and it's not an arrogant prayer. It's such a balanced prayer where he says, Lord, you've already spoken and I trust you to do what you said that you would do. So, Lord, please do what you've already promised to do. David's prayer is a prayer that appropriates the promises of God. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, if I see a Bank of England note, if I see a bill, a dollar, you know, a Bank of England note, financial money, it is a promise for a certain amount of money. And I take it and use it. Charles Spurgeon said, if I see a Bank of England note, it is a promise for a certain amount of money. And I take it and use it. But, oh, I, my friend, do try and use God's promises. Nothing pleases God better than to see his promises put in circulation. He loves to see his children bring them up to him and say, Lord, do as thou hast said. We have such a great place of being able to confidently say back to the Lord, Lord, thank you for your promises. God, please do what you promised. Uh, let what you've spoken come to pass. That's an active prayer of faith in the sure, steadfast promise of God. Now look at verses 26 through 29. He goes on to pray this. He says, And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you've promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Don't you love the confidence that David has in God and yet at the same time, the humble posture of the king. Here, David mentions that he's God's servant. And you know, he mentions that 10 times in a prayer that's only nine verses long or 11 verses long. He's fully confident that God will bless and build his own house and that God's name, not David's name, will be magnified forever. Love this chapter. And I want to apply this chapter in two distinct ways. So if you're taking note, together this morning from home, and I hope you are taking notes, I want you to jot these two thoughts down to apply this to your own life. Uh, first, number one, to apply this, I want us to note that God's eternal ways transcend our temporal lives. The word forever is mentioned eight times here in this section. David is recognizing that God's plans exceeded even his own life. That God didn't necessarily need David. He could, he could supersede and surpass even David's own life to get 
the job done. And so to apply this, guys, we need to realize that that God is up to something in the world that far exceeds the small time span of our lives. Just consider what's happening in the world right now. I mean, it's craziness what's happening right now. We're unable to meet together. And, and a lot of us are confused. We're here practicing social distancing and we're quarantined to our homes and we have the threat of a global pandemic spreading around the world. And so I wonder, is God in heaven saying, wait, what? They're, wait, what's going on down there? They're canceling gatherings over 10 people? Now, how am I gonna work all this for good? And you know, we know that God is sovereign. We know that God is in control and in the midst of chaos and confusion, God is still on the throne. And so I believe that he's already using this setback that we're experiencing for his glory and for our community's good. His eternal ways transcend our temporal lives. Like for example, the Bible uses a variety of different ways to describe, different analogies to describe our life. Here's just a few at the bottom of the screen. You'll notice that there's a few different ways the Bible describes our life. First, it shows that our life is like a breath, that our life is like grass, that you and I, our life really is meaningless, that it's a, a passing shadow and that it's compared to chaff. Now, what do all of those things have in common? They're all incredibly temporal. Did you know you take a breath an average of 25,000 times a day or 12 to 20 times a minute? So you've already taken hundreds of breaths while watching this. And these breaths come and these breaths go. Did you know that grass takes a few weeks to grow and yet without watering that grass, it only takes a few weeks to die? We know that shadows change as soon as sunlight changes, which is moment by moment. And, and chaff is the husk around corn or wheat much like a peanut shell that you kind of break and toss aside. It was kind of not really something you even notice. And so those are the words that are used that the Bible employs to describe our temporal lives on earth. So in light of that, what should our response be? Our response should be, I submit my life to your eternal work. God, I trust that what you're doing in the world today far surpasses my temporal life. And so Lord, I want my life to be submitted to you. I don't want to run against your ways. I, I want to uh, submit to you because trying to run away from God's plan is like a three-year-old trying to run away from home. The only thing waiting for you is trouble. So I think we can apply it that way, that God's eternal ways transcend our temporal lives. But secondly, to apply this and really to bring this home to us, God's eternal word transcends our temporal promises. Now, David may have been making a promise to do this for God, but God turns it around and says, no, I'll do this for you, David. So we should absolutely be people of our word. We should strive to honor uh, any promises that we've made and to be proven trustworthy. But listen, it's folly to think that our promises can actually compare with the promises of God. <laughs> I mean, yes, we should be people of our word, but whenever we make a promise, we are limited when we make that promise to our power and to our knowledge. So when I make a promise, I believe I have the power and the knowledge to keep that promise, but I'm making it in advance and I don't actually have the power or knowledge to make it come true if something were to happen outside of my control. So we're finite, not infinite. So I can promise my kids that I'm gonna be at their concert next week or I'm gonna be at their game that's coming up. But when I make that promise, I fully intend to keep it. But what I don't realize is that evening, 
on the interstate, if there's a major accident and all of traffic is standing still, I'm finite. So I lack the power to move all the cars out of the way and uh, to make it on time. I lack that knowledge and I lack that power. But see, God is not limited and God is not finite in his knowledge or power. So when God makes a promise, it isn't like when we do where we intend to do what we say, but then we don't have the unlimited resources to make it so. But see, our sovereign God does. When God looks down at the parade of time from his vantage point, he sees the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. And when he issues a decree, well, you and I can rest assured that all that he speaks will come to pass. See, church, God's eternal word transcends our temporal promises. So what should our response be? Our response should be to get to know and rest in the promises of his word. Our response should be verse 28, verse 28, where he says, you are God and your words are true. Now, uh, let's bring this home. There can be a temptation to read this chapter like we've read every other chapter in First and Second Samuel and think, you know what? I need to be like David. I need to make a promise to God and I need to keep my promise. I need to pray prayers of courage. I need to be thankful to God. And, you know, all of those things are, are correct. But listen, they're not necessarily incorrect, but they're incomplete. How cringy would, would it be if I were to say, hey, church, in light of what we just read, how David wants to build a house for God, we are starting a building fund and we need you to get your support behind this because we need to take care of God's house like David did. Uh, you know what? We always insert ourselves in as the hero. But church, let's stop looking for ourselves in the text and let's start looking for Jesus. Track with me here. God promises David that his dynasty will endure forever. In verses 12 through 16, God tells him that he would raise up the offspring of David who would come and build a house for his name. And this offspring's throne would be established eternally. We read there that God would be a father to this offspring and that he would be God's son. And if this offspring were to sin, then God would discipline him with the rod of men. He actually says with the stripes of the son of men. But in that chastisement, God would simultaneously be demonstrating his steadfast love. Now, in a very small way, that is a picture of Solomon, David's son born to him from Bathsheba. Solomon was David's offspring. Solomon did become king and sat on the throne. Solomon did receive the mercy and love of God, even though he sinned greatly. And Solomon did become the one to build the eventual temple for God's presence. But see, as we look at all of scripture, we see that there's a lot more to the story, don't we? We learn that Jesus is a true and better Solomon. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses five and six say, "'Behold, the days are coming,' says the Lord, "'that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness, a king shall reign and prosper and execute righteousness in the earth. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Now church, Lord willing, we'll be closing our David series in two weeks on Palm Sunday as we read about Jesus, the root of Jesse uh, from Isaiah 11. But notice here that uh, out of David would come a king who would be our Lord and he would be our righteousness. So our right standing with the Father is solely, we know this, the person and work of Jesus Christ. We are made righteous because he imputed his righteousness to us. We have an alien, a foreign righteousness that was given to us from someone else.
All of scripture testifies to this. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, we read this a lot at Christmas, says, For unto us a, a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it from that time forward, even forever. We read about this every Christmas, that a child is born and the son is given and the government will be upon his shoulder. But the next verse says that this future child king would sit upon the throne of David and rule over his kingdom forever and ever. Now Luke picks up on this in his gospel as the angel Gabriel speaks to Mary the Virgin. Notice in Luke chapter 1, it says in verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his, of his kingdom there will be no end. You see, God promises a house for David that is ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus rules and reigns on David's throne. Jesus' rule will never come to an end. We know that Jesus didn't sin, but he was made sin for us on the cross. He there was disciplined with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. And at the cross, the Father's love was demonstrated and his mercies rested upon Jesus, even as his wrath against sin was poured out upon the Son. And see, the scriptures declare to us that Jesus is now faithful over God's house and that you and I are that house. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The church, you and I, as believers, we are the temple of God. We're the dwelling place of God. The church is truly where God's presence resides. Now, we don't mean a literal building, but a spiritual household of faith with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. So listen, in times like these, where we can't meet physically with one another, with the church, we definitely remember that the church is not just a building. We are the church. We are a spiritual house with Jesus as our foundation. And so Jesus is a true and better Solomon, and all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. God has built an eternal covenant, and he's built an eternal kingdom with his son Jesus as ruler and the one who reigns over all, and he is the head of the church. And so church, in these very confusing times, in these strange days, let us live our temporal lives with eternity in mind. May we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, on what is above, not on earthly things. Let us trust in the sure word of God and on his promises, because they are yes and amen in Christ. And guys, let's see how God uses all of this chaos and all of this despair for his glory and for our good in the coming days. Let's pray together as we trust the Lord to do that. Father, thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, now as we um, continue to worship you in prayer and continue to go about our day, Lord, that we would be able to make much of your word, make much of your promises. Lord, we ask that we would see Jesus lifted up and that we would submit our lives to him. We thank you that he 
continues to rule and reign even when life is in despair we thank you for the promise of john 16:33 that in this world we will have trouble and yet we can take heart for you have overcome the world so let our hearts not be troubled lord help us to take heart and not lose heart in these days just equip the church lord to reach out and to be a blessing to be salt and light to be a city on a hill in these days where many people need to know the truth of the gospel. We thank you that we have that, that we have a household of faith with Christ as our cornerstone. We look to you, Lord, to do the work that only you can do in times of fear and despair and to use the gospel to encourage and point people to you. So we love you and we commit the rest of our day to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.